the whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching the outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hey, this is Bryant Arnold, also known as Dragon from Skinwalker Ranch, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. As always, my name is Andy, and really looking forward to speaking to the guest I've got on the show this week. Very quickly before I get to that, I just want to give you a heads up that next week's show that should be released on or around the 27th of November is going to be the long-awaited roundtable number two, and that is with Dan, uh, Dave Partridge from Shadows Magazine, and the Undead Gout Show, and we are going to be discussing your theories on the phenomenon, what it is, where it comes from, any agendas, and we'll go down the rabbit hole a little bit on that one as well. You've sent in loads of stuff already. I've got enough to do two or three shows on. So thank you very, very much. But uh, yeah, look out for that one coming next week. On the show with me this week, I'd love to welcome Steve McDaniel, who is the founder and lead software engineer from Skyhub. Steve, how are we doing today? We're doing great. I really appreciate you having me on your show today. No, awesome. Uh, looking forward to speaking with you, obviously. We've been talking for a few minutes uh, before we hit the record button, which has been good. Uh, someone that I've followed for a while, um, at Nibbleshift on, on Twitter, on the UFO Twitter feed. Uh, actually, I'm going to ask you this one that I never mentioned. What What is Nibbleshift as a handle? So it's, it's interesting because it's kind of like a computer science thing. A, a nibble is half an octet. And a shift is a mathematical operation that you often use in programming. So I just took the nibble and shift and threw them together. And I've been using that for my online handle for years. Uh, so it's safe to say you're quite geeky. Like, yeah, I would, maybe a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm in that field as well. I mean, I've got a UFO podcast, so of course I'm going to put myself in the geek category. So I, I can't of really course. not. <laughs> um, but listen, Skyhub uh, is, seems to be growing leaps and bounds and is getting really, really prominent. Um, I want to give a very quick shout out at the start of this, and I'll, I'll bring it in again later on, that Jeremy McGowan, one of my previous guests on the podcast, he's got a GoFundMe just now, which is you know doing quite well. And he's looking to actually build one of these modules that we're going to be speaking about. So if you get a chance, uh, once you've listened to the show, um, check out Jeremy's GoFundMe, and I'll put the links in the description as well. First thing, Steve, uh, is a little bit about you and the journey that's led you to Skyhub. So I'm assuming, given the, the nature of the project that you're involved in and what you do, you've got an interest in UAP and UFOs. Is that right? I do. I do. I definitely have an interest. And I can kind of give a little background on that. I've always been somewhat interested in the topic. Um, I've never taken it really seriously. Um, I'd catch an occasional documentary every so often. And that was essentially the extent of my interest, right? Um, I always I always enjoyed sci-fi movies. But things really changed when TTSA went public. So when, when Christopher Mellon and Lou Elizondo got up on stage and said, the UFO phenomenon is real, I was kind of looking at that like, wow, we have these two intelligence guys they're credible they have great reputations and they're standing here saying we should take this seriously and that's really 
when I got more interested in, in the topic. And that's when I eventually made my way to UFO Twitter, where we all end up, apparently. <laughs> and <clears throat> that's what kind of kicked off the journey into working on working on Skyhub. The so it's almost been a bit of a later entry for you in like a kind of serious fashion. Um, and what I always find quite interesting is, and it's something I just put online yesterday on my Twitter feed, um, was did, did TTSA coming out in December 2017 change the direction of the conversation and the topic? And on the poll, it was unanimously almost that, yes, it did. And there's still a lot of people who are very old-fashioned, you know, retro UFOs, and that that's fine. There's a huge history to the topic. But it's got people like yourself and, and to an extent as well myself in the game that you want to be involved and really take this this forward, which can't be any any bad thing. And people have been screaming out for years that they wanted the government to acknowledge UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them. Here here are the government. You know, Chris Mellon was very much the government. Uh, Lou Elizondo, very much a patriot and, you know, heavily involved. And they came out and acknowledged that. Did you have any um, interest going further back to like childhood, or was it very much something that's, that's kind of crept up, as you say, in later life? Um, I've always been interested since I was a kid, but um, the 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 introduction with Chris Mellon and Lou Elizondo was the thing that was like, okay, let's really like, what can I do to kind of help? Like, how can I figure this can figure this problem out? Right. So. so- so you see those guys on stage and they come out and basically, I mean, let's not put it in any other terms than UFOs are real. That's what they came out and said. Here's some videos which are, you know, pretty incredible, prompted a lot of conversation as well. What are the conversations then for you that lead to the inception of Skyhub? So it's interesting. So I want to give like kind of my take on the videos, right? You know, oh, please. Yes. Yeah. Really. I'll keep it really simple. So I'm very skeptical about the videos. So my position is, is there's not enough evidence to actually make a conclusion based on those videos. Um, but I think those videos are good enough evidence that we can take action on. I think it deserves further scientific inquiry. Um, and when you say no conclusion, what you mean is no one's saying, or you're not saying these are alien spacecraft, which correct, people kind of jump to. So I don't think we can make any kind of conclusion on what they are at all. And um, I think they're very interesting. I think they're compelling and I think they should be looked into. And I, I've convinced myself that that's the right approach is that we should be extremely skeptical about the videos, but we should also take them very serious. And I think that's a really fair approach as well. And but we've got our famous skeptics online just now who are quite quick to jump in and say what they aren't. And even for like myself, I'm not claiming these are alien spacecraft or they're clearly pretty incredible sp- craft or objects whichever they are i personally don't think they're helium balloons flying along the seabed at incredible speed or a flock of seagulls that have been caught but again that's because people with far greater technical expertise than me or people with government clearances have came out and said and like you've just said these are worth further and you've used the the phrase in scientific study which is which is absolutely fair what what do you think then? Because you've brought it up now, and I'm, I'll talk about it. What do you think about the quality of the videos? I'm so I think they're good quality, right? So they're better than most of the videos that we see. Um, and it's not just that they're better; it's the chain of evidence that matters. So we know the provenance of those videos. 
and they came from the DOD. And I think that's important. They didn't just come from some random guy on his cell phone in a shaky, blurry video. Like they were literally recorded on the most sophisticated systems that were available at the time. So I, I think they are good videos. I just think um, more data needs to be available to the public. So that's where someone like yourself with uh, a clear level of technological expertise far beyond the average person thinks I can get involved in this. So what are then the next steps for you um, into the creation of Skyhub? So this, this dates back earlier this year. So we were actually, I was actually part of an organization called UAPTN and I was working with uh, Joel Dodd and Bob McGuire and we worked on a, a system that would essentially use uh off-the-shelf cameras and sensors to collect data. Um, as we work through this over time, uh, UAPTN evolved into Skyhub, and we turned it into an open-source project and wanted to build a community out of it. We wanted it to be open. Anybody can join. Anybody can grab the code and add features. So the kind of the concept was we wanted to have a sensor for any type of environmental reading. We wanted to be able to support several different kinds of cameras and optics. So the best way to do that is put the code out there for free and just let experts come in from different fields and add those capabilities. So as we worked through this, the whole goal was, you know, Skyhub's not for me. It's for everybody. Um, our goal, like the platform is just a means to an end. The real goal is actually accumulating and creating this data set for the public. So if we can support this community with this infrastructure with trackers all over the globe, we can collect sensor data, atmospheric data, magnetic ratings, RF, uh, deploy passive radars, collect all this data in a public cloud and allow the community and experts and researchers to go analyze this data. And I think my number one goal with it was we need compelling evidence to get mainstream scientists engaged in the topic. And the best way to get them engaged is to give them data. And, and that's awesome. From the outset, it's been, let's give this to everyone for free. There's no paywall behind it. There's no, if you sign up to this, then you get X, Y, and Z. And if you pay a little bit more, you get this. It's very much people can go. And there is a cost involved, but that's not going into your pocket and making you a millionaire off the back of it. You're not charging people two and $3,000 for something they'll get nothing out of. It's very much a project for people. What what is the audience though this is aimed at? Would would you say, and has that changed from the start of Skyhub to now? So we've been very narrow in our focus. Our our focus is observational science. That is our goal. We're creating a platform to collect data to aggregate it into the cloud. So we we want to maintain that core goal. And fortunately, our core goal overlaps with lots of other scientific fields. So if we're collecting observational science data and watching the sky 24-7 and collecting atmospheric data, that also applies to atmospheric scientists and meteorologists and even people that are interested in bird migration patterns. So that data set's available for other scientists to get involved in. Um, we will always focus on the core UFO research, um, but we will also enable other scientists to use this data for any type of scientific research and we're more than happy to provide a mechanism for universities and scientists to, to leverage that data. 
So it really is open and it's for everyone. And that's that's quite interesting. I hadn't thought of that or considered that this could be used for meteor, meteorological purposes. That's hard to say in a Scottish accent. But like you say, bird migration patterns or if you're into weather phenomena, this can be used for a whole host of things. But I suppose most people listening to this and the idea behind it is where people are looking for UFOs or unidentified aerial phenomenon, that sort of thing as well, which, which is the main goal behind it. I take it that this might be a really obvious question, but you've built one of these yourself. Yes. So I actually have like four of these. So, um, and the equipment has graciously been donated by some folks and I bought some myself, but I essentially have each configuration for the platform um, set up in, in my lab so I can test each device to make sure that when we make updates and deployments, that no matter which piece of hardware users chose, it's been tested and it should work. So I have one production tracker and I have three test trackers that I run just to that, make sure everything always works for everyone. I think there's a lot of very jealous people out there just now. It's the equivalent of the people trying to get a PlayStation 5 just now, but they hear that someone's bought two and there's people that would love one Skyhub and you've got four. So yeah. <laughs> <That's, laughs> got to uh, keep things rolling. Got to keep it testing. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's really cool. Um, so why the name Skyhub? Uh, what's behind the name? And was were there any names you, you thought about or considered that you, you didn't quite make it in the end? So no, we actually, that was kind of like, um, the name, you know, we were looking at like better branding. What's catchy? What's cool? What's hip? And uh, I mean, a lot of the branding and design we owe to Adam, who's also on the Skyhub team. Like he did all the branding for for Skyhub, and we came up with the name. It just stuck, right? Like it was a great name. The domain was available, and it's kind of a cool, hip, nice looking platform that looks professional, right? So it's something that you can really push, and. It has actually worked very well in the community. It's very modern, and even the, as you say, the graphics, the the logos, all looks the part. Which, with these sorts of things, can be half the battle. That it looks professional, it draws people in. It made me before I, I knew what it was, and all you see is a name. And I suppose that's the same for my podcast. That yeah, the podcast gives the title, but you want people to click on a logo. You want them to look at a description. You then want them to kind of buy into it, and you want them to invest their time and their efforts and focus on this to to contribute to that data field that you're looking at, which is amazing. And so you touched on Adam there. So I'd like to know who is the team behind Skyhub? So originally, um, Corey Gaspard and I uh, have done all the development for the platform. And Adam is our our data licensing and, and resident lawyer. So he handles all the, the data licensing. He handles all the legal stuff for the organization. He's also an enthusiast, and he's been a huge supporter. When we started this, Adam was one of the first guys in. He was out there deploying cameras on top of buildings and t- setting up the first uh, first test trackers that we actually deployed. He actually put those up out in Houston. Um, and as we started to mature, um, Richard Hoff came along. Uh, he is actually the one that's responsible for that beautiful Skyhub tracker enclosure. So he actually modeled and designed that entire enclosure and has done all the models for all of that. Um, and one little nice thing about that, we're actually working on mass producing those enclosures. So we're currently in talks with manufacturers because we had a, a gracious donation to actually cover the costs of the tooling and manufacturing. So soon we will have pre-orders available for that case. So thanks to Richard for that. The, the, 
Well, I've actually got two things on that. One, uh, one of the listener questions is from Richard. And uh, second one, one of the listeners' questions is uh, when will enclosures be available? So that's uh, <laughs> you've got one there. So uh, that's good. That's good to know that they're they're almost going to be in production. Um, mm-hmm. Can you give a date or a time scale on that for people? So we're hoping to have the uh, enclosures available by January. So that's currently currently the timeline. It seems like the world is a little bit slowed down with COVID going on. So we're working through the process and dealing, uh, working with the manufacturers to hopefully get those to people in the next couple months. months. So save your Christmas money if you're looking for a Skyhub enclosure. Yeah. Let us know and we'll get you one pre-ordered. But uh, outside, of, outside of Richard, um, Chris Cogswell, and a lot of people know Chris, um, we actually asked Chris to come be the chair of our scientific advisory board because I'm not a PhD and uh, there's no other, there were no other PhDs on the team and we wanted somebody with scientific credibility and a PhD that could navigate the scientific community and help drive the science of Skyhub. And um, he's done a fantastic job of setting up a scientific advisory board and they really helped drive kind of the requirements and details of some of the things that we're implementing. And we also have David Moore, who is a PhD in did a, a digital signal processing. So he's, he does audio engineering and he handles scientific communications for Skyhub. And he's been a massive contributor to Skyhub and is largely responsible for the great documentation that's available for putting putting the Skyhub together. And that, awesome. that pretty much covers the, the core team. So again, that's a, a team there that are working. And is it, is it safe to say that's largely they're volunteering their time given the, the nature of the project and what's involved? Is, is it something you've got funding behind to, to pay salaries? And No, this is all a side hustle. We do all of this for free. So everybody has contributed their expertise and time for free. Um, people have made all of their own financial investments for the equipment. So we are literally spending money out of our own pockets to put this whole thing together. And that says a lot about the, the goals behind and you know, the morals behind the, the project as well. And I think that's why more and more people are get, getting involved. While it's still a relatively new company and project compared to, to some, have you spoken to any third parties? So obviously you've, you've told me there that To The Stars Academy and their big announcement was a bit of an inspiration into kickstarting the whole thing. Have you spoken or reached out to them or any others about getting involved or what they can do or what you can do for them? So we've we've talked a lot to a lot of people around the community and I think there's a, uh, an intense interest for lots of groups around the community to collaborate towards towards a goal, right? Because we're all looking for data and we're all looking for answers. And um, we aren't partnered with anyone other than the SEU right now. When that's a great organization to be a part of. If if your listeners aren't aware of SEU yet, go check them out, go become members and support that organization as well. But really what it comes down to is we're all working towards the same thing. So if there's other organizations out there such as SEU and TTSA, Hey, let's work together, um, and let's let's make this happen. And, and while you've touched on it, I, I don't mind if you want to talk a little bit about SCU. You know what it is, how people can get involved, and what it what it means for you. So, initially, when we got into this, SCU was one of the first organizations that we joined. Um, so, SCU is the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. So, it's it's a group of engineers and scientists and professionals that are interested in the topic and want to pursue this 
scientifically. So they put, they've put out some great papers um, and it's a great organization to get access to researchers and scientists that are, <clears throat> that are also interested in the topic. And um, you can go to their website and sign up as a member if you have um, an interest in helping with different aspects of the project or you're a scientist or an engineer. Um, there's always a, a place to get involved in either Skyhub or SEU or both of them. Um, a lot of the members at Skyhub have also joined as SEU members. So I highly recommend checking that out. Yeah, people people should definitely do that. And listen, something that has been screaming out for a long, long time in this subject and in this field is more scientists to get involved and mainstream scientists. And I mean, ideally, you want really, really skeptical people coming on and people yes. that don't have that belief that I believe in aliens, I believe these are coming from different planets, different dimensions, they're on this planet. You want people to come in and almost try and disprove it because... Again, people know my, my thoughts. I don't think they'll be able to. So you want really hard-line scientists to come in, look at the best possible data, which Skyhub is going to be a huge part of that, and and give us their thoughts. You know, what what is this? What could it be? What can you eliminate from it? And that's how we're going to move this, this subject forward rapidly. We're in a bit of a... I mean, by the time this comes out, there may have been some UAP news um, leaking. If you know, you're know you involved in UFO Twitter, if you've seen the last week, week and a half, there's a lot of rumours that we're going to see some news drops um, this week, uh, potentially as early as tomorrow. And then the 2nd of December for another drop keeps being mooted as well. Uh, I won't go into the, the rumours of what might be coming out. I've heard a few different things. Um, these have traditionally in the past led to being a little bit anticlimactic so i think people can get their hopes up that they're going to wheel an alien body out of somewhere and show it on tv but you know if we get some uh, documentation or extended videos or a photograph you know who knows what what might come out uh, but again if it's some sort of you know scientific announcement or you know some some data that backs up something we've had before then then that would be great have you heard anything yourself steve about anything that's coming out i've been hearing the rumors and and hearing the hype building up um the best i can say is you know let's just wait patiently let's not speculate and you know just wait for the the goods to to come out and that's it and hopefully as good and not just a ah okay but yeah anything that moves things forward for me is always is always a good thing which uh we'll look forward to um what i want to ask you then so right now that the idea for for people if you've been listening you've heard that skyhub is basically you you could go online you've got all this as open source code i'm not obviously that technical but yeah yes. is, that, is that the right language is all there that you've got the blueprints basically to build these machines that are basically going to track um, a part of the sky where you live and what i've loved tracking skyhub um excuse us tracking you know but online on twitter is seeing people from all around the world who have their own builds of these machines um i think one of them had very strategically placed it on the edge of the roof um and had to build like a almost like a, a seal or clamp to keep it down which was really interesting and yeah so seeing stuff like that's really really cool because these are just your kind of average joes who want to have an interest in this this subject so i i've got here that there's there's a cost involved that's obviously it's not it's done for free by people like yourself but if i want to get involved i need to pay so what are we looking at setup wise and cost wise for the for the equipment so it really depends on the route you go so 
we've tried to make this accessible for people, but we also want high fidelity videos, right? So there's a balance there. So um, it's not going to be super cheap. You know, you're not going to be able to go get set up for a hundred bucks, but it's, you know, there's a small price to pay for getting high fidelity data. So we tried to break it down into tiers for people. So we essentially have a good, better, best option. So um, starting at the base, you probably get away for about six or $700 for a platform. Um, you can go as high as about $3,000. And if you really want to spend a lot of money on optics and optics can get very expensive, uh, the sky is essentially the limit. So just to give an example, I have a setup and it was probably around $3,000 um, just for one tracker. And that includes high-end fisheye, high-end PTZ, all the sensors and uh, the high-end board. Now, if, if you don't want to go spend $3,000, <clears throat> which I don't recommend you do, um, you know, you could, you could put together a very nice setup for six to $700 and, and be rolling and have lots of sensors, great optics and um, you know, a very nice enclosure. And again, this is a time when people maybe don't have as much disposable income or cash as they have had in the past or, you know, hoping in the near future people's circumstances get a lot better. However, at the end of the day, like I mentioned before, PS, that PlayStation 5 just came out and that sets you back in the US $500. Oh, yeah. Um, scalpers are selling them for four or five times that. But obviously, let's go with $500 base price, a couple of games and an extra control pad. They are seven or eight hundred dollars easily anyway, so it's still a, a relatively, you know, sensible amount of money that you can put out on what's some really good equipment. Right. What are you going to get? So you've said you've got a good, better, best option. What levels of recording and data can you expect to to get from those three options? What's the difference you're going to see? So right now we're recording between eight and twelve megapixel video streams. Um, from anywhere from 25 to 30 frames per second. So this is just with our fisheye camera. Um, as we progress and get further down the road, we'll, we'll deploy the support for pan, tilt, and zoom cameras. This is where it'll get really interesting because we'll have um, high-end optics that can actually track objects in the sky and zoom in on them. And that's where we'll get really good close-up imagery of objects. And those cameras generally produce uh, images in 4k so you, you can go up to 8k but 4k is really where it's like uh cost effective and high quality so trying to help the layman's out here and i would put myself above a layman but well below some of the the, the equipment you've mentioned a fisheye is just your standard and i suppose it's what you can see on some of the the videos if you go on the website and whatnot and look it's just your one camera looking up at the sky and you can see a bit of a is concave the right word? Like it kind yes. of bends across? Yes. So it actually, it's great for sky watching. So what it does is a fisheye camera, the ones that we use give you around 180 degree field of view. So you can, you can essentially see the entire sky above you if you have no obstructions around the camera. So you can have a very, very good view of the sky. And where that's useful is that um, we can actually detect motion in almost any part of the sky. And when we enable support for the pan, tilt, and zoom camera, we can detect with a fisheye, and the pan, tilt, and zoom will actually zoom in on the object that's detected on the fisheye and then track it with the pan, tilt, and zoom camera. So that's, that's kind of how their intention, uh, we intend to pair them together. 
what's going to be the difference? So I've got that. So say I go for the basic setup and I've got that fisheye camera. I've got the, the lower end of the range, but it's still, like you say, going to be some good equipment I've got there to pick up some some data. And then I come into some money and I want to upgrade and go for the higher end equipment. What difference are you going to get on your end when you receive that data from me? What's going to be the, the clear differences? So it really depends on the optics. So on, on our end, it, it really, it really won't matter. We'll just get like slightly higher, higher quality, quality data. Um, your unit might be able to run more intense machine learning models, which that's one of the big things, right? So we're doing machine learning at the edge. So the tracker actually runs um, NVIDIA DeepStream and we're applying different algorithms to the video stream to help classify or detect anomalies and track um, optical flow vectors and motion vectors. So the better equipment you get, the more intense algorithms you can run at the edge, which is useful for us in the cloud because um, you do all that computing on your tracker that can just be sent up to the cloud. Um, as far as the video quality, um, it really depends on the optics. So I do recommend getting a camera that's between eight and 12 megapixels for the fisheye. So if you go to our wiki, we actually have a list of hardware that we recommend for the baseline. And that same camera for the fisheye is really recommended across the good, better, best options. Um, The difference between the good, better, best is going to be how many cameras you can actually deploy. So I think it's feasible that eventually we'll have a configuration with three cameras on the tracker which would include a fisheye and then it include a MIPI camera and a pan tilt and zoom camera. I know this is somewhat technical, but like kind of our intention is we want that flexibility for people. And the great thing about this project is, is you don't have to do it exactly as we say. Um, if you find ways to improve or, or put other sensors on the platform, the platform is there for you to build on. We just want to provide that framework and infrastructure to people to innovate. It's like it's like buying a PC. Like I've just upgraded my setup recently in here from a laptop to a desktop, which allows me to do a lot more. But I bought a basic PC and I've added some different components to it and upgraded it. So it runs faster. I can do more things with it. I can You can run better games. You can run better software. And that, that's the same idea behind Skyhub that, as you say, you said the sky's the limit, but it is because you can customize and change this to be what you want it to be. Um, what's this ideal setup for you then so i i live in a pretty built up area it's it's quite busy let's just say it's not the 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 most affluent area um Mm -hmm. it can be a little bit rough where i stay and i set up a sky hub um i've got the enclosure everything else on top of say a garage i have is that the safest place to have that in this area is there like an ideal location so i I personally, like, I don't have to worry about that. I kind of live out in the country, but if, if you're going to put it in a location, you want to make sure it's properly secured. I mean, obviously, you don't want somebody to, like, walk up and, you know, pick up your Sky Hub and walk away with it. So I, I do recommend putting it in a location people can't access, and if it is, you will want to properly secure it. Um, you can put a door lock on, on the Sky Hub tracker. So on the panel, it'll have hinges, and you can actually throw a lock on there and make it so no one can open it. And if you secure it to the ground, no one will be able to take it. What sort of size are we talking? Again, are the, are the sizes, I take it, go up depending on the, the good, better, best? So actually, the, the enclosure 
is the same size for all three platforms. So okay. th we use the same box. Um, I don't know if the measurements have changed in the latest revisions, but it was roughly, uh, let me see, 10 by 10 by 20, I believe is roughly where we were at. Um, so it's not huge. Um, it's a, it's, it's a very good size case and we basically tried to make it as small as possible, but still maintaining flexibility and extendability. And what units of measurement are you using for the 10 by 10 by 20? <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Inches. <laughs> inches. Okay, yes. cool. Cause I was thinking, is that feet? Because just depending where you're listening, feet and inches uh, in the UK, um, might be a little bit or centimeters. So yeah, that, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. 10 inches by 10 yeah so that that would be doable because i've got where i live the skies are also very clear um i'm outside of the city enough that the light pollution's not as bad and i've got a trampoline for the well i don't have a trampoline the kids have a trampoline i'm too fat for a trampoline um but the in the summer particularly i like to lie in the trampoline and you can look up at the stars and you see the starlink satellites going over and so it's really oh, wow. really nice so i i would quite like a sky hub for for where i live but it would have to be very much tacked to the ground. But like you say, with one of these enclosures and you could secure it, which, which is the main thing for people. But if you live in a nicer area, that's probably not something you have to worry about. But I mean, and, and we talked a little bit about an ideal deployment. So I want to talk a little bit about how to configure it or how, like the parts to put in, inside of it. So ideally, um, you want the sensor platform and you want good opt uh, good optics. So I would definitely deploy with an Xavier NX and that's the, that's the better option. So that's the middle of the road option for the tracker. And then I would deploy with uh, a good fisheye camera and we have those recommended on the wiki. But the other great things is we're working on support for ADSB. So we're actually Im implementing support for tracking planes. Okay. Um, we want to know about all the air traffic. And this is really important in the sense that if we see things on the camera, we can use ADS-B and uh, FlightAware to actually determine if it's a, a plane up there. So it's a quick way for us to gauge what's actually in the sky in, in the video frame. And using other sensors like the weather sensors and light sensors, um, it gives us a really good feel for the local environment as well. So potentially some, some things affecting magnetic fields or something is broadcasting RF on different uh, frequencies, or there's an object in the sky that's not broadcasting an ADSB signal, and we could potentially use passive radar, which is being worked on by um, Bob McGuire, uh, that can detect objects that aren't broadcasting signals. So there's a lot of interesting capabilities in the platform that the more engineers and developers that we get involved, the, the faster and quicker we can expand these feature sets for, for the Skyhub tracker. Have you got one of these out at Skinwalker Ranch? So we do not want, have one out there yet. And I'm glad you brought up Jeremy earlier. So Jeremy McGowan, and yeah. I love what he's doing. And I really hope that the GoFundMe that Jeremy's using to build this tracker is a trend that really gets popular because maybe somebody doesn't want to, he's planning on spending $3,000. So he's going to put together a very nice platform. Yeah. And $3,000 is a lot of money to spend on a platform. So I really hope like either people do co-ops or GoFundMe and groups of people in an area will get together and raise money to build this platform and do things like Jeremy's doing, bring it out to Skinwalker Ranch. We do not currently have Skyhubs out there, 
but Jeremy plans on getting that sky hub rolling and, and getting out to Skinwalker Ranch and seeing, seeing what he can collect out there. And I think it's a fantastic idea. Yeah, and that's it. It's, it's not Jeremy's, he's not building this for himself. Yeah, he's putting it together and he's got the expertise, but if, if you donate to this and if you contribute, a part of it is yours. I'm not saying you can then claim that piece back at some point in the future, but you, you can kind of be a little bit proud and have the knowledge you've invested in it. You know, the data it's collecting, you've had a part in, to play in that. So if you're at all interested in the field and you can spare a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever it may be, then that might be something I think the listeners to this podcast, if you can't go out and build your own, then really please consider donating to Jeremy's because really nice guy. He's just actually got into the, the UAP UFO field. I'd done Jeremy's first interview that was after unidentified. Um, and the, how integrated he's become within the community is amazing from me speaking to him before that show when he was really unsure and he'll say himself that he wasn't sure how much he wanted to get involved and he very quickly realized no this is something he wants to be a part of so he's a big part of the community now and i would love to see people getting involved in donating and there's one very important thing here so and i haven't quite talked about this yet but the whole idea behind the skyhub tracker is as it collects sensor data and video data it uploads that to the cloud for the public to see so everything that jeremy's doing all that data collected by that skyhub tracker is going to be aggregated and made publicly available so you know jump in and contribute that data is going right right to the public um that's for for everybody to see and everybody to analyze and that was going to be my next question anyway, which is great. And it rounds off that journey to someone building this, setting it up. You know, they're filming a part of the sky. They're looking for anomalies, depending on the, the sophisticated equipment and what it's picking up. You can eliminate a lot of different things. And then you've got that that steady stream of data being sent over to you uh, to the is it a, on a server or, or what, but basically collated by your guys on the cloud. Yes. So, um, and I'll talk about that a little bit. So we, we do have Patreon supporters that help cover the cost of a cloud infrastructure that we host on Google. So Corey has, uh, one of the guys on our team has, has set up the cloud infrastructure that everything runs and we have Google cloud storage that all of the data gets dumped into. So currently that infrastructure exists to support all the trackers. All the trackers connect to this infrastructure. Um, our Patreon supporters support that infrastructure. Have you got like, what's the address for the Patreon? Do you know it? Yes. Um, it's actually Patreon Skyhub, patreon.com forward slash Skyhub. Again, I'll put the links in the the description for the, for folks who want to click on and contribute as well. Yeah. If you go to skyhub.org and in the upper right, uh, it says support Skyhub. You can actually make a recurring donation through Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, whichever is easier. Again, it, th- this isn't free to do. So these you, these guys like Steve and Adam, Bob, everyone he's named, Chris, are contributing their own time, and there's a cost to all this stuff, as I've talked about with the, the podcast and you know what Jeremy's building. But if you can contribute, then it's all very worthy causes as well. So definitely consider doing that. I want to ask if if you had a money is no object, what sort of price would you be looking at to build, you know, Steve McDaniel's perfect sky hub setup? What what would you think you could you could go to for pretty much perfection for what you're looking to achieve? Man, I've actually never really thought about that. I spend most of my cycles thinking of 
about what I need to do next to get more trackers out there and get more people involved. Um, but honestly, um, I, I, I bet I could spend about $300,000 on a tracker. Um, I know it's expensive, but some of the optics I've looked at um, are easily um, north of $100,000 just for one camera. Um, I, think- I, I think that's totally fair, though, because like you, you talked about the, the New York Times videos earlier, and I'm imag- I imagine the cameras on those fighter jets are in excess of hundreds of thousands of dollars, and at the end of the day, you, you still get a relatively grainy a bit of blur video whether that's the full capabilities of these cameras are probably up for debate and no doubt there's better quality out there but i i could see why you could you could push three hundred thousand for a camera yeah i mean when it comes to sensors and cameras and capabilities i mean you can really you can really like flare cameras are very expensive for high-end cameras so i would definitely go for uh optical cameras i'd go for flare um i would put lots of sensors in it um I would probably put very high-end antennas and passive radars in it. So you can you can definitely spend a lot very quick. Um, you can spend a few thousand dollars in just computing hardware. So I think I think I I'd probably spend a lot if money was no object. And I'm sure it's something you can get pretty obsessed over as well. Like when you start to build, like like I say with the PC, me starting to add a little bit to that, you can start to really enjoy it and add in. Oh, look at the graphics have improved, or oh, I've got a better camera, or oh, I've got a better optic, you know, a better sensor, and you just start to get better and better. And there's always something more you can do. And that's kind of the idea behind this platform, right? So let's say you just want to get started, and you want to start with just a camera and just a GPS device and and just a computer, right? Just the computing platform. And that's it. Like, let's, let's say that's all you want to start with. If, you know, a few months down the road, you want to add in a couple more sensors, just add them in, plug them in, plug and play, it'll start working. And a few months later, let's say you want to add ADSB and tracking planes, and you can add that capability in. So this is very much, you can get started small and grow into a more sophisticated tracker over time. Because you know, not everything's super cheap. The big, the big ticket items are going to be the computing platform and the camera. But once you get past those things, things are relatively inexpensive. So you can pick up a sensor for like fifteen bucks for some of the sensors, or some of them are even like seven dollars. So over time, you can you can expand and grow your your Skyhub tracker. And I know you said obviously you're looking for a certain quality, and the baseline you're looking at six or seven hundred dollars. Is there no way? that people could look to do a, a more of a budget option. I know I know you said you can't do it for a hundred, but two or three hundred dollars, or would you would that just not be worth it? So I I, I think potentially, right? So there's a lot of very smart people out there that are engineers that would probably be able to go get some of the more like uh, rugged camera sensors that don't have enclosures and aren't aren't packaged in an ip67 housing um you could get very cheap um if you go down that road so if they just if they're engineers and diyers they can go put that together for a few hundred dollars so it really depends i mean there's some good cameras available that are camera modules that you know are less than a hundred dollars that you could put together with the hundred dollar jetson nano so you could probably get around with 250 to 300 really, really budget, but kind of after going through this and spending almost a year on it, um, 
people have convinced me that some things are bad ideas and others are good ideas. So I was actually taking the hardware aspect of this a slightly different direction. And and Richard convinced me out of those things because he he professionally designs enclosures and he made a lot of really good arguments. And there's a certain va- like there's a certain value to going down a certain path just out of um, you know, the quality of your build, how long it's going to last, um, and the value that you're gonna get out of the data in the platform. And that kind of goes back to the enclosure that he designed because he actually designed that for a very specific reason to properly protect all the hardware and to make sure that we have a consistent build between trackers, which is very important as we push features out. Cause if we want to do some of the more complex features like tracking objects in the sky with two cameras, you actually want them to be fixed in a fixed position relative to each other. And that's easier to do if you have an enclosure and the sensors are in particular positions. It's harder to do if someone builds it in their own configuration. So there's sure. there's there's factors there. So you could really go budget and eventually like work yourself up to like getting an enclosure and more expensive. But you know, I I recommend anybody try it. Even if you go through a, throw a few hundred bucks of this as a as a fun project, I'd say still get involved. But there are benefits to going down, um, getting a SkyHub enclosure and going that route. And like you say, you get what you pay for. So there's right. a reason you're you're suggesting that six to seven hundred dollars. Which, again, when you take into consideration, you can buy a PlayStation Five for for that. Then it's a fair price for what you're getting. Yep. Um, that leads us on nicely then to listener questions. Uh, the first one would have been from Craig, but his was around when will enclosures be available. So Craig, that's been answered. Uh, Steve was saying hopefully January. But just keep an eye. You can pre-order though on skyhub.org. Is that right? So we're not taking pre-orders yet, but we are asking that um, people express their interest. So jump into the chat or drop us an email at team at skyhub.org and let us know if you're interested and we can start estimating the size of our first initial order. So if you're interested in that case, come let us know and and we'll start start working those numbers for everybody. Yeah, there you go, Craig. Get in touch with Steve and the team and they'll they'll sort you out. Uh, Craig was a long-time Patreon as well. Uh, Shauna, another long-time Patreon. Uh, she said, Steve, um, I don't know too much about Skyhub, um, but reading online, uh, one of the Skyhub almost mission statements is uh, you talk about using observable science and the use of a tracker. Um, what do you mean by observable science, if you don't mind explaining that? So... I'll explain a little more than that, right? So kind of my approach to this is I'm very skeptical. Um, I'm skeptical of most of the claims. It's not that I don't believe them. I don't necessarily like that word. I'm not convinced of them, right? And we all want evidence. So at times through through this process, even when early on when I got involved in UFOs, I, I was told that UFOs couldn't be studied by science, but kind of my perspective was if people are experiencing something or they're seeing something, whatever that thing is, is manifesting itself in reality, whether it's light or a physical object and it's making a fingerprint on reality. So I, I argue that anything that we've seen or experienced can be studied by science. Now, the great thing about observational science it's, it's about studying things that are not easily repeatable. So you observe and you collect data. And with this data, you can generate trends 
and pat find patterns and generate models based off these observations. That's really our core goal. We just want to observe and we want to collect data. We want to be a completely passive platform. We don't want to introduce any signals into the local environment. We just simply want to observe and observe the UFO phenomenon to find these patterns and generate models to help understand what we're observing. And it's possible that a lot of the things that we're observing uh, might be natural or perf have perfectly prosaic explanations, which is also a huge win because we're narrowing uh, the unknowns. I like that. Uh, Shauna had also asked about uh, using a tracker and the projected costs, which we've talked about through the episode. So thanks for that, Shauna. Um, next up, um, Aliou, and I'm probably butchering the French name there. Um, you've just almost touched on it, though, there, Steve, on environmental impacts. So what sort of considerations do people have to have, if any, for the environment? In regards to deploying a tracker? Um, just regards to, I think you touched on it though, where you're not introducing things like signals, um, so you're not going to be interfering with, I'm guessing, local wildlife, that sort of stuff. It's purely observational. Yes. So one of the ideas behind this is um, early on, people like threw in ideas like, oh, you know, you should mount lasers on it. So when something flies over, you should shoot like a laser at it. I'm like, well, I don't want to get arrested or deploy a <laughs> yeah. platform shooting lasers at, you know, commercial jets. Um but really, it comes down to, like I said, we just want to observe and we don't want to impact the local environment. We want to keep that to a minimal. So we don't even recommend wireless internet. You can use Wi-Fi, but we really want to minimize anything that's introduced into the local environment so we can just monitor what's happening and not impact. Well, we're going to impact that because we're taking measurements. However, we don't want to introduce anything unnecessary. Yep, that's fair. Um, what about the technical skills required to operate? And you've, you've touched on that it, you want it to be as accessible as possible, but I'm guessing you have to have a base technical ability to put this stuff together from scratch. Yes. So um, it is a DIY effort. Um, right now, this may, may not be accessible for anyone, um, but if you're, if you're brazen and daring, I, I highly recommend it. Um, we're here to help you. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta be able to turn a screwdriver, but you know, the team is here to assist with your build and work through any issues. Um, we've helped about a dozen people already, uh, just through the chat room, assembling their trackers and getting them deployed. And you know, there's, there's, there's people of all different sorts. Some people are technical and some people aren't, and we're willing to help anybody get their tracker going. And there's a great community of volunteers that are available to help. To give a base level then for anyone who still struggles with the technical aspect of what you're discussing. So someone like me, who I would consider myself reasonably technical to a point, I would feel my height of technical ability has been recently where I unscrewed the panel from a PC, installed a new graphics card and some RAM, and then put it back together. Is that, as you, when you say brazen, would someone like me be capable of giving this a go or would you still be looking for more? Yeah, I think that should pretty much do it, right? So especially if you go to our wiki, um, we're constantly improving our documentation for assembling a tracker. So as long as you can follow a recipe or an instruction book. So if you've ever built a table from Ikea or followed a recipe to make a mill, you should be able to follow these steps to build something. So one, one note on that, and I'll talk about the enclosure a little bit. 
the enclosure is intended to, to simplify a lot of the build. So to have very precise instructions and screw holes for every particular part and, you know, to really simplify that aspect. But as long as, as long as you can swap out a graphics card or install some RAM, you should be good to go. You're just going to be plugging in a few wires and, you know, screwing some boards into an enclosure. Cool. Um, so taking it to the extreme where we talked about environmental impacts, uh, Andrew Hall, who I recommend people check out Dead Hand Radio, he's the host of that show. Um, he thought it would be cool to have uh, some sort of x-ray capability on the units. Now that is certainly introducing some sort of environmental impact, but is yes. that something where you could see where that would go or how that could be useful? So I may be not the best person to act, ask that because I'm not super familiar with x-rays. Um, I, I believe that that that's, can be somewhat dangerous, right? <laughs> Broadcasting yeah. x-rays. You're starting to deal with uh, radiation. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I would see that unlikely. I, I could, mostly we want to do passive, right? So I could see uh, cameras that are tuned for, for different um, ranges. Um, but as far as x-ray, I think that's a little difficult because we don't really want to broadcast. So one thing I'd love to see in the platform is a Geiger counter. Um, one of my pet projects if I ever get spare cycles away from working on just getting the platform rolling out to the public, um, I'll probably make a muon detector module so we can detect subatomic particles using the Skyhub tracker. So that's that's something that I'd eventually like to do. Um, you know, projects like I, I believe MIT did that project where you could make a little hundred dollar do uh, do it yourself muon detector. And I don't know if your listeners are familiar with muons. It's just a subatomic particle that um, you can detect when they crash into a scintillator inside the detector. And so you can count how many times a muon has crashed into the scintillator inside of the detector. So I think it's little experiments like that that we can do that might shed light onto some unknown thing in science. Something, uh, and this was a question from me off the back of Andrew's question. So it sounds like from what you've discussed, Skyhub is pretty much future-proof because it's so customizable. There's not really going to be anything that can't be replaced when it goes out of date because everything can just be swapped out for something else in a new part. Is that right? And that's that's our goal, right? And I think we'll be very future-proof. So our, our core platform is based around NVIDIA Jetson. So NVIDIA makes a, a class of products it, that are basically embedded computers uh, with machine learning capabilities on them. Um, they're very popular in drones and uh, like vehicles on RC cars and things like that. So NVIDIA will continue to release new models of that platform. So even the computing hardware will be able to be replaced when the hardware in your tracker is outdated in five or 10 years. And if you decide you wanna update, you, know, you can just go order a brand new board from NVIDIA, swap it out in the platform and continue to upgrade other aspects of your system. And I would vouch for NVIDIA, looking at my NVIDIA graphics card that I just installed in the PC recently as well. So yeah, it's some good, and it looks pretty cool as well. Um, so next question, again, we've got a radiation theme here uh, from Richard G. Hop uh, on Twitter. Um, what about using radioactive isotopes exposed to the sky to attract UAPs? So it's, 
I'm not a radioactive isotope expert, but I would think this is this is probably a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, so, we've always heard the 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 claim that uh, UFOs appear over nuclear facilities. Yes, um, uh, I think it would going. be fascinating to test um, if there's actually a legal and safe way to do that. Um, it seems like it would be an interesting test. I. But I'm definitely not an expert there. I, I was going to say that I think the issue there, and I, I don't know if Richard wants to get in touch on Twitter and and even yourself as well. It'd be good to hear a little bit more on that because I was thinking straight away it ties in with the idea that these craft are attracted to nuclear material. Uh, again, the the Nimitz, the, the Tic Tac incident itself, that was a nuclear powered. Um, carrier group so the idea being that part of the reason they were observing the the group were the the nuclear capabilities or the nuclear kind of signals that were given off um short of tying a nuclear rod like seen in the simpsons opening uh, that goes in bart's pocket to a pigeon and setting that off into the sky and i think there's all sorts of reasons you shouldn't do that folks so please don't um that would be an interesting one to go about but again if, if that's just talking about how you could attract a potential UAP that you could then film, you know, maybe going with a CE five or something a little bit safer might be the the way forward. Yeah, um, interesting theory though. Maybe one for for down the line. Um, Nick Madrid. Um, he's talking about uh, Chris Mellon recently appeared on Stars and Stripes which is a military podcast I don't know if you've heard the interview I I listened to it myself a few days ago actually and again he hinted strongly at uh, UAPs being a potential national security threat and they are sizing up uh, the capabilities of the military and I know that's not necessarily something that Skyhub's deployed to do but what, what are your thoughts on UAPs and potentially you know interfering with the military for those sorts of reasons so just just to give a little context here so we don't know what UAPs are um, I think that we have more than enough evidence to to conclude that they're real they're real real physical objects somebody's flying something around the skies and we don't know who it is and we don't want know what it is and based on that definition alone i think that's a huge threat right so my uh, my background i worked for the department of defense for years i was in i was in the u.s navy um and did naval intelligence and when you look at issues like that when you have you know aircraft flying through our skies unimpeded um, that's a risk. That's that's a threat. That's something that should actually be concerning to people. Um, which is, I'm a little bit surprised that the topic's not taken more seriously because that's actually pretty concerning. Somebody has something that can essentially fly anywhere, and we don't seem to be able to do anything about it. So I think we we should have we should be very motivated to understand the who and the what. I think the general consensus and argument classically has been, and that's really interesting that that, that is your background. Um, one of the arguments has been that, you know, people don't know what this is and it's just swept under the rug or it's covered up. But then some people would subscribe to the idea, the reason that it's not gone after or treated more seriously within the calls of government and whatnot uh, is because they do know what it is and they, they don't go after it for that reason, which... Again, we don't know at the minute because you you don't know if it's uh, Chris. I, I'll Chris Mellon for me again. He's a very serious guy. He seems to know what he's talking about. He's he's been uh, if I'm if I'm wrong, forgive me, folks. But the Under Secretary of Defense, 
Um, so that's that's a pretty respected and high ranking position. And he is he has came out and basically said these are not US, Russian, or Chinese. So we're going to then use common sense and as much as you can in this topic and eliminate that they are then not another country's equipment or craft either. Um right. and on this um recently i I can't remember if it was the phenomenon uh, documentary or if it was on this radio uh, broadcast he mentioned he would like to eliminate et et's being a possibility because it would make things a whole lot easier but based on what they see and the data you can't eliminate that so he he's leaning towards it being something that's not us russian basically not made by us, which it may or may not be the case. He could totally be lying and pull all our pants down in the end, but I, I hope not, and I doubt that. But yeah, that, that seems to be the kind of the angle he's taken. So what what's your thoughts on that then? So my thoughts on the whole thing, um, I'm not actually convinced anybody knows what they are, right? So I don't think there's a best assessment. Um, I don't think anybody actually knows and people always talk about disclosure. That's a big word in the community. Um, I really think it's already happened, right? So we may not know everything, but I don't think there's really much more to know that the things that I think exist that we've never seen that's sitting, you know, behind some secret government program. I think they have more data, but I also think, I don't think they know. So I don't think, I don't think they understand what it is or what they know. They just, likely have higher fidelity data and more of it that's in the public but i really don't think anybody knows what we're dealing with or what it is just to pick you up on you use the phrase pardon me there's not much more to know is that in the sense that there is nothing more they can find out or just nothing more the way things are done at the minute that they're going to find out so in the sense that so the government has always uh, has halfway acknowledged that. So they've come out and said UAPs are real, right? Yeah. So they basically said they're real. So if Twice. the government had, yeah, if the government has more, and this is this is speculating, so we're in speculating territory. Yeah. So if the government does in fact have more data, um, I don't actually think they know what it is. I just think they have more evidence to prove that it's happening. But we already know it's happening. So as far as um, do I, th- do I think the government, when they, you know, disclose everything, are they going to roll a, you know, alien bodies out of area 51 and say, yeah, you know, it's, it's extraterrestrials. I actually don't think that there's enough evidence on either in the public or in the government space to make a conclusion. We just know that UFOs are real in, in that sense. So that's why I think it's important for people to take it serious and you know, be skeptical about it. Um, like I look at Skyhub, and it's definitely not an ET project. This is this is not about aliens. This is about understanding something that's unknown, and that's what science is about, right? We we use science to explain things we don't understand, and we we develop models to help explain the the world around us and explain the universe. So if we have something truly unknown going on, we we shouldn't be so afraid to pursue it, um, you know, cre- like very rigor- rigorously and across the globe. Absolutely. And and that's my excitement with it as well, that if these tic-tacs, if, if that's what it is, and let's just take face value that 
David Fravor saw what he saw, 40 foot, you know, tic-tac shaped object. And these things go from the 80,000 feet altitude to the seabed in two seconds. Then if that's not alien or multidimensional or whatever, and it's ours, then that that's still incredible. Then that and opens up a lot more questions from from a physics standpoint of how does that work? When did you discover this? You know, how does it run? Who makes it? How do you make them? When did it just suddenly change that we're spending billions of dollars? Was it recently? Was it forty billion dollars the US has spent um, on the Russians? sending astronauts to space using the Soyuz module and you think so there's 40 billion dollars that you know could that have been spent elsewhere so that all that kind of stuff it opens up a lot of different questions and right. uh yeah so I, for me whatever it is I'd, I'd like to think we find out eventually maybe in the next week or two but probably not folks if you're if you're hanging your hat on that uap news being something like that um on the topic of government though uh nick martin who listeners might hear a little bit more of soon from uh, the show's point of view he might be getting involved in, in a new show i'm doing um have you been in contact with any government or corporations to cross-reference activity or using the data you've got Say that one more time. I didn't catch um, that. So have you been in contact with any government organizations or corporations to cross-reference the data you have or any activity you've picked up? So currently we have not collaborated with the government at all. Um, we have talked to some private companies um, that have common interests um, about potentially um, you know, taking advantage of uh, some of the AI solutions they have available um, but as far as cross-referencing, um, we really haven't done that. I know other members of the community have talked about potentially generating tools to cross-reference Skyhub data with MUFON data. Um, and, you know, if there's other projects like MADAR out there that want to use Skyhub to cross-reference to other events in, in MADAR, if MADAR wants to share data that can be cross-referenced with Skyhub events, that would be fantastic. But... Currently, we've mostly been focused on um, just getting Skyhub working end-to-end and getting the data out to the public. And it may be too early, but Nick also asks, have you seen any emerging patterns in the data yet? Or So that's really early, and I'll kind of give you some insight to where we're at. We've, we have about 20,000 videos from the trackers right now. So one, of the, so one of the things that we're always short on is people. So to think about how huge this project is and how difficult it is. Um, most all of the technical work for the software development has been done by just me and one other person. Um, so it takes us a little time to get through things. Um, we've had some great volunteers come in and uh, people help guide us on some of the machine learning aspects because I'm not a machine learning es- expert by trade. Um, but fortunately, we've got experts that have PhDs in machine learning that are helping kind of guide some of the decisions that we make. However, we're just two people doing development work. It takes time. So we hope to do that, and we're working towards that. Um, we don't have patterns yet, but it's something that we're actively working on. And if that's something listeners want to get involved in, you can reach out to the team or re- reach out to Chris Cogswell and you know join the development team or join the the scientific advisory board and help drive that mission. Awesome. Um, are there any videos that you have seen? I know you're saying there's 20,000 there um, that you would find particularly interesting. Is there anything that you've went wow at so far? So one of my favorite videos um, is the one on our website. So 
there's two videos on our website that were actually taken in Houston, Texas that show an object in the sky that's making non-ballistic motion um, above the city of Houston. So those two videos are very interesting. I personally can't spend a lot of time analyzing videos, mostly, mostly because I spend all my free time writing code for the platform. But And I kind of briefly touched on that previously. Um, as we get our automated machine learning and classification and anomaly detection uh, more mature, we should be able to quickly automatically identify uh, the videos that uh, are would be of interest. Awesome. So, I, I urge listeners to, if you know, if you're interested or you're an engineer or a software developer or um, interested at all, or you have friends that are interested, come join the project and help build this out. Yeah, folks, listen, worldwide, we've been put into lockdowns and quarantines and people have a little bit of more spare time on their hands. So yep. if you're looking to do something that's going to help out a worthwhile cause and give you some some new learns and, and whatnot as well, something to do, then definitely get in touch with the team. Um, last question is from Dan, and he said, thank you for your work. Um, assuming everything goes smoothly, what does Skyhub look like in five years? Um, he also asked, will it be used alongside other applications, which I think we've touched on, um, and could it plug into what TTSA are building? I, I think that's I think that's a potential, right? Um, the one thing that we wanted to make sure with the data that, that we're collecting, the data that we release publicly um, does not allow for commercial use. So we want to do that to make sure that the data remain free um, and that academics and the public can get in and use that data. So currently... We don't allow commercial use for the data from Skyhub, and we'd like to keep it that way. But um, we definitely want people to use it and and do research and analysis with it and do studies with it. I think that would be fantastic. And as far as kind of my five-year plan, um, Skyhub has grown a lot since we started this. And the amount of time that I spend working on Skyhub has grown significantly. Um, it, it capitalizes a lot of my time. I actually hope at some point that we can be a UFO research organization that can actually have a staff of engineers and scientists. And I think, you know, optimistically, um, hopefully we can find a way either through grants or funds to, to build an organization where we can have experts and engineers and other individuals help drive this mission, right? So if in five years we have a thousand trackers deployed across the globe or more, that's going to take a significant infrastructure with support and full-time people to actually drive that. So in five years, I hope we're somewhere at that point. And I don't know if your listeners are familiar with MITRE. So MITRE is a great organization that does research and they're a nonprofit and they have full-time engineers and staff that does research across a wide range of industries. And potentially we could do something along those lines, but focus more on the UFO phenomenon. Amazing. Before we wrap up, Steve, I always like to finish off with a quick fire round. Um, so just a few words or names or companies that uh, you can say as much or as little on as you like, and then we'll, we'll finish off, if that's okay with you. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I just want to say a huge thanks to everybody who's contributed to Skyhub. Um, we have hundreds of members that have been really great to the project. Um, we've had, you know, James and Justin in there um, helping with the 3D modeling builds, helping with the documentation in the website and keeping our, our socials up. Um, and yeah, basically just thank you to the whole community that supported us to this point. Um, I will kind of end this on, Hey, I really, you should, you know, if you're interested and you're tired of 
tired of the rumors and tired of the hype and tired of being let down, Skyhub is a great way to get involved, to get your own answers. I mean, this platform is for us. This data is for us. So perhaps this data set exists somewhere behind a closed door, um, but this is your opportunity to get that data out into the public and be a part of something bigger. Absolutely. I would encourage the listeners to get involved. And uh, you can really be part of something like you say that pushes the movement forward and gets answers one way or another, hopefully. That that would be really, really cool. Um so you've shared a little bit on this, but uh, your thoughts on To the Stars Academy. So I think To the Stars Academy has actually done a ton for the community. Um I know I know people have like differing opinions about TTSA. But I think one thing's irrefutable. Um, they've brought so much public awareness to this topic. I mean, I wouldn't be here doing this unless Tom DeLong created TTSA with with Lou, Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon. I mean, and I think that's true for a lot of people um, that are involved in the topic right now. Um, there's a lot of new people in this field that are here purely because of... Um, TTSA and the New York Times article. So um, regardless of how people may feel about TTSA, I think they've done great things for the community. Um, at times it can be confusing, right? This is this is a weird topic. I mean, just look at Twitter. Um, like UFO Twitter is very complicated. There's lots of beliefs and ideas and opinions. But um, I try to be optimistic about all the efforts going on. I think TTSA has pushed... Um, push things in the right direction and brought a lot of awareness to it. And I think kind of a testament to that is we saw legislation go through the Senate intelligence committee for the UAP task force. Yeah. And that's huge. I mean, we actually got in writing that the government set up a UAP task force from the Senate intelligence committee. Now we don't know if that actually produced anything useful for the public, but it is an acknowledgement that the U S government is taking it serious. And I, I would like to think that TTSA and Chris Millen played a large role in making that happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, for all intents and purposes, the US government's came out and basically said UAP UFOs are real. They've not said what they are, but if, if you had said three years ago, you were going to have an admission uh, by the government and then the US Navy coming out and saying, yep, these, there are some videos of UFOs, but, uh, in 2020 it seems all bets are off and uh, these things can very much get caught up in a in a wave of covid and everything else so mm -hmm. maybe people are ready for a little bit more who knows um following on from that one uh, your thoughts on louise elizondo so i'm a big fan of lou um i think he actually sacrificed a lot um i also worked in the dod right um he he gave up his job and his livelihood to like you know bring information to the public and bring awareness really. And, you know, probably at a huge risk, you know, like he's got a stable job, probably making decent money working in the government. And then you kind of, you give that up to, to help bring awareness to the UFO topic, which comes with lots of stigma and at times ridicule. Yeah. Um, and honestly, a lot of people avoid it because they don't want the criticism and they don't want to hurt their careers by, by talking about UFOs and, uh, you know, strange phenomenon. But we had a guy that was willing to come out and do that for the greater good and for the public. So I'm actually a huge fan of Lou. Fan of Lou. Um, I think he's done really great things for the community. So, I mean, he walks a very fine line, right? And, you know, I know a lot of people pressure Lou, like, oh, just 
you know, break your NDA, give up the secrets, but you know, those NDAs are there for a reason. Um, there's a very specific purpose and, you know, like others that have held clearances, like you took an oath to keep it secret and like, you know, got to maintain your integrity and keep those oaths. So I think he walks a very fine line and I, I don't think most people fully understand of how much he's really done for people walking that very fine line. I I'm absolutely agree. And do you know what? Let's just for talking sake, Lou comes out tomorrow and goes, do you know what? I'm going to break my NDA. Here's what I know. He's never going to please anyone anyway, because he's just going to get people. Yeah. That's what they have told him to say. He doesn't know anything. Or if they don't like what he says, then they'll just disagree with it. And so I think he knows that there's no point. And he said himself on, on various interviews, it doesn't matter what I think. It's right. this is what we're trying to do, and again, you'll you'll know that appreciate his his tagline of you know look at the data. He's all for look at the data. Let's get scientists behind this. Let's look at the videos. Let's analyze. Let's use AI, and and let's find out for ourselves what this is. You can find out. You know you can push this forward, and and that that's definitely happening. So yeah, huge Luella Zondo fan, as all the listeners know. Yep. Um, have you got any thoughts on CE five, which is Stephen Greer's um, communications protocol? So not really. I've heard a little bit about it. Um, I, I'll be honest. Um, I've read two UFO books in my whole life. Um, I'm actually not big on on reading UFO books. Um, I really I don't know too much about CE5, little bits and pieces here. I've watched some of Greer's document, documentaries, but really not much more than that. Um, so I, I probably don't have too much to say about that. No, but again, that's why it's good having people like yourself involved in this topic. And to be fair, doing what you're doing is pretty incredible that you just want to see the data. You want to see a scientific approach. And as Shauna asked about earlier, it's observable science. And if one of these sky hubs picks up a huge ET craft flying over New York one time and the data proves conclusively, no, this thing's incredible, great. But that's probably really unlikely. But what you might find uh, as the cameras improves and technology improves is there, there's something to this topic. So it's it's we don't know yet. It's far too early to decide where it's going to go. But again, people like yourself being that interested, what do you think then about the notion CE5 being that you can summon extraterrestrial beings using essentially what is the power of you know the human spirit in your mind and, and everything? Is that something then being so scientific that you don't put a lot a lot into? So I think that you can pursue anything scientifically, right? So I'm of the opinion, we, we, do, we all don't need to be scientists, but we can all use a scientific method. And there's always a way to establish fine guidelines for a hypothesis to test and maintain strong controls and test something. So yes, I'm, I'm a firm believer if, if, and some people might call it fringe or weird or metaphysical, by all means, pursue those things. But I, I employ people, be skeptical, use the scientific method, uh, pursue it with, with rigor and a strict process um, because that's how you're going to create a model to understand what's actually happening. Um, if things, these things are happening, even, even being rigorous about recording data or taking notes or document, documenting these things is important. So even in your own journey, even if you don't get involved in Skyhub and you pursue the UFO phenomenon, be rigorous and use a, a solid, well-known methodology like the scientific method. Um, it'll help you. 
Awesome. Uh, have you followed the Bob Lazar story? And if you uh, if you have, what are your thoughts on Bob Lazar's claims? So, yeah, I'm very familiar with the Bob Lazar story. That's a story that seems to pop up every so often. Honestly, um, I don't think, in my opinion, I'm not convinced. I don't think there's enough evidence. Um, it's it's a difficult one, right? So there's a lot of people that really believe Bob, and there's a lot of people that think Bob's lying. Um, I really, I really haven't come to a conclusion on it. Um, other than I don't currently think there's enough evidence to support his claims. Um, it would be fantastic if it were true. I would, it would change everything, right? But currently, I, I don't think the evidence is there to to support the story yet. So if at some point he comes out with element 115 and shocks us all, then maybe we can double back and okay, let's look into this a little bit more because even if he did, pro- you know, provide element 115. It doesn't prove any of his other claims other than he has element 115. So we need to take that even further to, to verify his further claims. But a good first step is show us the 115. Okay, cool. I like that. And again, he's a, he's a scientist, doesn't he? So you would... He seems very intelligent. I, I've seen the document test, document documentaries that he's been in. He, he seems like a bright guy. He's he's not dumb. Yeah. Um, but... Smart people can mislead people, um, but it's 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 difficult, right? Maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe maybe he's not. Um, one thing I position I try to take is, I'm not here to say what's true or false. I'm just here to collect data, and I don't. I try to approach things whether with a low level of confidence or a high level of confidence, because I think it would be unfair of me to say that something that someone has experienced or seen is false, right? Because I don't want to tell them they didn't have an experience or this didn't happen to them. I just simply take the position. I I can't be convinced unless there's credible evidence to support it. No, of course. And I I say regularly on the show as well, and and more as I've got more confident and done more episodes and, you know, the listener base grows that I, I have my own thoughts and my own opinions on what may or may not be going on. Those are fluid. And even in the last six months I've done this podcast, depending on people I've spoken to and things I've seen and, you know, again, different, you know, if you want to scientists that have come out, different government officials that have come out, um, I will make my own mind up. But at the end of the day, everyone who comes out with an opinion at the minute could all be wrong but only one person or one theory can ultimately end up being correct so right now there's a lot more of us could end up with egg in our face than than be right which is like again why what you're what you're looking to do and what you're pushing you know scientific you know data the the hard facts here's what we do know uh, is definitely a huge part of what's going to get us the answers at the end of the day that that does lead me on though to the next question that i could imagine if i just come out and ask you 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 may give an answer that i'd have to push you on so i'd like you to as best you can you talk about low confidence high confidence the actual phenomenon itself what's going on now you're not going to come out here and tell me you think it's aliens but if you had to come down on one side of the fence as to what is happening? What are the the craft on these videos, and what are people seeing worldwide? What do you think's going on? So, and you're right. I don't think it's. I don't think there's enough evidence to support ETs, but I'll I'll give you the best answer that I can. Yeah, please. So, if we go back in history and we look at um, when laser technology and fiber optics 
were were invented when when we realized that technology there was lots of theoretical uh physics and and theoretical math that supported those technologies that was theorized years and years before we ever realized that technology so if you look back in from the 70s and before um academia and private sector and the government was doing research into those two technologies for lasers and fiber optics. We can go back in history and look at all the research that was iteratively done across the entire globe and country that was done within the private government was done within the private sector and that was done in academia. And we can follow that path that led up to laser and fiber optic technology. So if we look at that scenario, you couldn't hide those two pieces of technology. Like you just couldn't hide them, right? There was just thousands and thousands of people involved in that research and making that technology work and function. So if we look at things like the Tic Tac and the the data produced on those three videos along with the witness testimony, um, and we tr- really do have an aircraft out there that's exhibiting capabilities that's, you know, flying what, 18,000 miles per hour in in the atmosphere and making these kind of maneuvers. There's no body of evidence that currently exists in academia or the private sector or government projects that's available to the public that supports any of that technology. And I'm also not convinced that you could hide those kind of advancements for such a long time because the Nimitz incident, I think we're going on 15, 16 years since it happened. Yep, 16 um, years, just a few days ago, yep. Yep, and if you look at uh, history, things like this is, has happened before. I, I see a video that Stanton Friedman shared back, I believe, in the 80s that looked very similar to a Tic Tac, right? Um, I don't know the provenance of that video, but if we actually really do have these sophisticated aircraft and there's no research to actually support that technology... I'm definitely leaning towards not ours. And when I say not ours, not from, not from humans. Mm-hmm. So it, it does seem the amount, the evidence is mounting towards another, another explanation, but I don't know what that is. Right. And I am still not a fan of the ET hypothesis, but it does appear that it's, it's not ours. It's, it's something else than, it's something than human. Else. And it's, it's interesting because and I kind of don't like saying this as a skeptic, but the universe is a big place and we don't, we don't understand things. Um, and maybe it's something that we have never considered. And, you know, I've heard people talk about extraterrestrials. I've heard people talk about time travelers and interdimensional, and maybe it's just something we've never even like considered or something that maybe we can't quite comprehend yet. I I think my, opinion changed i've never mentioned this particular thing but as to as to why i start to lean a little less et and more different realities bleeding through or multi-dimensional or another type of civilization being on the planet alongside us aka a a sort of wakanda if you're a black panther fan um but it was was lou elizondo one of his first um, interviews he done or videos was the whole human kinds that it's not humankind or mankind but mankind's and 
there's a reason he's came out and said that. So for me, it's like for someone who's not giving away too much in what he says and talks about the data, he has literally come out and said, what if it wasn't just mankind? What if it was mankind's? I mean, that would be fascinating, right? Um, and Incredibly, yeah. So the one of the reasons I don't actually like the ET hypothesis, and it might be short-sighted to have this perspective, but um, things are really far away from each other in space. And it takes a massive amount of energy. And space isn't really, like, biologically for humans. Um, it's not great for humans to live in space. Like, once, once you get out into space, you have to deal with you know, gamma rays and zero, zero G radiation you know, belts and, and radiation. Yeah. yeah. You have to yeah. deal with all these issues and we're just not made for that. And if other intelligent, if there is intelligent life out there and there may have a similar biological makeup that probably wouldn't do great in space, maybe they could overcome the technical hurdles of traveling through space. But the biggest one seems to be energy. It's just so much energy to get across space. And potentially somebody may have figured that out, but currently, based on our understanding, I think that's a very low probability that something's actually traveling that distance to Earth. So that's why I'm not a huge fan of the ET hypothesis yet until until we can exhibit that um, those breakthroughs are possible. And to be totally fair to you, though, a lot of the things you've you've claimed here and said you're not a fan of or you don't necessarily believe in, you've you've tended to use the word yet at the end. So that's totally fair that you're leaving yourself open to say, and like, like I try to do as well, that I, I could be wrong. I just, at the minute, I don't think this. So and until something presents itself otherwise this is what i believe which is which right. is totally fair um i want to know do you prefer the term ufo or uap so i actually prefer uap but sometimes when talking about it it's so much easier just to say ufo because it seems like everybody that's into the ufo community knows what a ufo and a uap is but if yeah. you ever talk to anybody about this outside of the community most people haven't heard of the term UAP. No. So sometimes when you're trying to communicate the idea to people, it seems easier to use UFO when you're speaking to individuals outside of the UFO community. Absolutely. And the last one, it's just to sum up, but you did touch on this already, your, your final thoughts on disclosure as a process. My final thoughts on disclosure as a process. I think people need to get out and be diligent and search for answers them, themselves whether it's through Skyhub or through another, another effort in the community, um, you know, stop spinning cycles, speculating and debating on who's right and who's wrong and go join a project where you can actually make, make an impact and a change. And, you know, if you consider Skyhub as one of those projects you can jump on to, to help with disclosure, um, maybe we can play a small part in, in finding answers and maybe disclosure will never happen or maybe it already happened, but really what we want is to understand, you know, unknown things. I like that. And and like you said before, you, you feel it's sort of happened already, but maybe from here on in, if people want more answers, they're going to have to pick up the baton themselves. And, and that's where Skyhub listen to podcasts, watching documentaries, getting involved in other people's Skyhub builds, you know, getting behind TTSA, that's that all starts to come into play and people have to get behind these things themselves. 
Yep. And you know, I, I, you know, for your listeners, I'd say, ask yourself a simple question. What if no one has the answer yet? And the answer you're waiting for, no one has. And so one way to find that answer is, is to go looking and work for it. Science isn't easy. Science is messy and science is time consuming. So, you know, the longer we procrastinate, the longer it's going to take to get those answers. I like that. Steve, it's been great speaking with you. If you can just let the listeners know again how they can get in touch with you, um, how they can get involved in Skyhub, uh, just to wrap up, that would be great. Okay. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, if you guys want to check out our website, you can check us out at skyhub.org. And we also have a community chat at chat.skyhub.org. Um, you know, you can jump over to our Patreon and that's patreon.com forward slash um, Skyhub. So yeah, you can shoot us an email and catch the whole team at team at skyhub.org. Um, we're always around to help out. Awesome. Been great speaking with you, Steve. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Cheers, man. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue.
Thank you.